Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very special episode of the show for you today. Joining us on the other side of the mic is our guest, SEC Commissioner Hester Purse. Today, we're going to be discussing broadly the regulatory environment for crypto here in the United States, including Commissioner Purse's recent dissents on the SEC's targeting of the Kraken staking program and much more. But before we dive into some of those granularities, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right? Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high-integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I want to thank our guest, Commissioner Hester Purse, for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate you, you being here. You obviously have a lot going on. I guess we can sort of start at a high level. How are things going? Frank, thanks for having me. And and uh, there certainly is a lot going on crypto and otherwise at the SEC. I, so I have to start with my disclaimer, which is that my views are my own views and not necessarily those of the Securities and Exchange Commission or my fellow commissioners. Would you describe yourself as someone who is not afraid to sort of hold back, no holds barred? Well, I mean... Look, I'm in a I'm in this position, and I think it's my role to call things the way I see them. Um, I, we're making a lot of dis, a lot of important decisions about a lot of important things, and so I think it's important for me to uh, bring my perspective. I mean, a lot of people don't understand how the SEC works, and they 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 think it's kind of odd that you have different people from the agency saying different things. But it's really intent. It's a commission, so it's five people with five different perspectives, five different backgrounds. Um, and we all, we all bring that to the job. And I think that actually at the end of the day makes for better policy. Um, sometimes it, it 
can take a while for things to work themselves out. But I, I do think that that's, um, that's my job. So at a higher level, putting crypto aside for a second before we dive in, maybe explain to folks how it does work. I was speaking to a friend who is uh, European, and they were a bit confused about how you may have a Republican under a Democratic sort of uh, uh, chairman. How It's not like, you know, many other parts of government. How, what's the sort of, you know, what's the operational sort of backdrop? Yeah, no. So, th so the SEC is one of a number of independent regulatory agencies, and we have a commission of of five people. Our terms are staggered, so so one person's term expires every year, and we're politically balanced. So, um, the the president's party gets gets the majority, but then there are a couple of uh, of of us uh, who represent. Um, a different perspective, right? And that's intended so that you have policy consistency over time and you have a variety of views represented in developing policy. Um, so it can be very confusing, I think, to people on the outside. The chairman sets the agenda for the agency. He decides what rules we're going to be working on. He manages the staff. The staff all report to him. And so he obviously has has powers that the other commissioners don't have, but we all have a voice. And when we when we vote on a rule, it, it's majority vote. When we vote on an enforcement action, it's a majority vote, whether that's to bring an action or settle an action. So that's why you sometimes hear different things coming out of the agency. And if you were to think about the House view on crypto, if you were to describe it as favorable or unfavorable or positive or negative, does it shake out to be one direction or the other? Well, I, you know, I'd say that right now there's a negative, there's certainly a negative view. I, I think that, you know, there's a difference of, of opinion about how clear the law is with mm. respect to crypto. And so I think that is the source of some of the, some of the uh, dissension that you see. And... I think a question that a lot of people are asking is they're, they're looking at what's happening and some people, I think based on the history of Chair Gensler, think that this is sort of something that's been a long time coming, right? This is a, um, the recent actions, the recent headlines that we've seen are part of a, of a longer story that date back way before FTX. Other people think FTX happened and there's this sort of reactionary element um, responding to that meltdown. Can you comment on the degree to which the headlines we're seeing coming out of the SEC are a reaction to FTX or just uh, a broader story? Well, I think it's important to remember that Chair Gensler has, he, he knows a lot about this technology. As, as you know, he taught a course on, on the technology at MIT. He understands um, he understands the landscape. And so I think he came in knowing, knowing what the landscape was and, and, and wanting to have some sort of a regulatory imprint on that landscape. Um, and so here we are after a very bad 2022, I think everyone would agree that it was, was a tough year. And I think that in Washington, that, that the bad events of 2022 have sort of increased attention on crypto and on the need to develop some sort of a regulatory approach to crypto. 
I, I would posit that that should be a regulatory approach done through notice and comment through um, these, these processes where, where other people are involved. Others would say, no, it's just a matter of enforcing the existing rules. And so I think you're seeing, you're seeing um, a different, different approaches being taken, but definitely more attention because of the bad things that happened in 2022. I think many people, especially in our industry, would say a little too late with everything that happened with, with FTX. People are scratching their heads thinking you're coming after the proverbial or as it were, the responsible actors, whether it's a Coinbase or a Kraken, whereas the regulators were maybe asleep at the wheel as it pertained to Celsius or, or FTX itself. Do you think that's a fair view? I think if we had taken a more rational approach to regulation, it would have been easier to distinguish good actors from bad actors. It would have been, there would have been more transparency. But I do think it's important for people to be consistent in what they're asking for, right? If you, if you say we don't want regulation, then when something bad happens, you can't go running to the regulator and say, well, where, where were you? Um, so I, I, I think that if we had taken the approach of I've always said we need to be proactive in this. We need to be working with people to try to build frameworks that make sense. And then people will, will be able to actually come in and register. Um, and, and, and then there'll be more transparency. I'm not someone who believes that regulation is the only way to achieve transparency. I think there's some practices in the industry that were kind of sloppy. And regardless of whether you have a regulator or not, there to tell you there are some things that you should be paying attention to. Um, you've got to think of who your counterparties are. You've got to think who their counterparties are because that can import risk into your relationship. You have to think about where you're custodying things. Um, you don't need a regulator to tell you these things. These are things that you can figure out. And for centralized entities in the crypto space, they too don't need a regulator to tell them to be transparent to their customers. That's something they can do on their own. So, you know, I do think that a better regulatory framework in the United States would have meant that more activity would happen in the United States. More of it would have happened in a more transparent way. Um, so I, I think it could have been part of creating a better environment. I also think better industry practices driven by people in the industry itself could have built a better environment. No, that's, that's fair. And that kind of brings us to the situation with, with Kraken's uh, uh, $30 million fine with, with the agency. This specific program, I mean, if you think about the, the merits of the, the chairman's proposition there, it, it's something that I think most people can agree with, which is if I'm staking my coins with crack and I want to know exactly what's happening within this, this black box and that I'm getting the necessary amount of coins th through that, through this sort of um, protocol, as it were, no one would disagree with that. But I think a lot of people would think, why can't there be an alternative where um, it, it's not, it doesn't fit exactly into the box of, of a security, but we want to ensure that there's transparency and disclosures. Why can't there be some sort of alternative 
or sandbox where you, you don't necessarily have to fit within the exact parameters of the traditional system, but you still can sort of um, have something akin to maybe uh, the 606 reports that a Robinhood would would produce that show you're, you're getting best, best execution or something to that effect, but the staking version. So, I mean, I think there are different ways to approach this. One is that you know, the industry can kind of develop standards on its own and say, here, if we're running a staking program, here's the kind of information people would want to know about the about the program, how it works, what happens if the company running it ha- runs into trouble, where where do you stand in the bankruptcy priority? Um, those kinds of questions, I think, are, are, are things that it doesn't take a regulator to tell the industry to disclose that. Now, one could say, no, we really want to have a regulatory framework where we know that regulator is going in and checking it in the sense that if you're making those statements in a regulatory filing and you lie about it, you're facing legal liability for lying about it. Mm. And so one could say, you know, the SEC framework is really a natural for that kind of a disclosure framework. So that's fine, but I think my my concern about the approach that we took with respect to Kraken is that coming in, we've known about crypto staking for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's it's not, you know, then these programs, staking as a service programs, have been out in the open. We've known about them. So what we could have done, and I think would have been a very productive way to to approach this would be to say, look, here's how we're thinking about staking. We're thinking about it, staking services as potentially implicating the securities laws. And here's what we're thinking a registration regime might look like under the securities laws. Have people come in in public and discuss that sort of in a generic sense, come up with some kind of framework and then individual staking as service providers can come in and register. And then in the process of registering, they'll deal with the unique aspects of their programs. But the generic questions will all have been answered across all programs uniformly. I think that's a much better way than coming in after the fact with an enforcement action. It just it it just doesn't make sense. And then especially when the result of the enforcement action is just to say, you committed a registration violation, and so we're shutting down your program so that U.S. people can't participate in your program anymore. It seems like such a strange result to me. If investor protection is about just shutting programs down so that people are preventing people from purchasing certain things, that's a very unimaginative unimaginative form of investor protection. Um, so it, I, I, I just... I think it, it's illustrative of the approach the SEC has taken to this area, which is just to say the law is clear. We're not going to have any conversations about this. We're just going to come in sometimes well after the fact, and we're going to bring enforcement actions. We're not going to have any proactive, productive, across-the-board conversations that happen outside of a back room where an enforcement settlement is being negotiated. So what do you think the end game is? Is the goal to effectively strip away the on-ramps that exist for U.S. retail market participants to access crypto capital markets? I think a lot of people are concerned about 
not just offering certain products or listing certain tokens, but just existing um, alongside fiat rails. There was a Bloomberg headline recently about crypto firms being pushed to the fringes of finance because they're going to lose their their banking uh, relationships. Is that is that the end game? Is that the future for crypto in America? I mean, it's a very strange end game if that's if that's where we're trying to to have things go. And I, I always find it frustrating when people say, "Well, look at crypto; they deal with all these these entities that are not within the traditional financial system." And then they then at the same time they're saying, "But entities within the, within the traditional financial system can't deal with crypto." So you can't have it both ways. Either you're going to allow uh, crypto entities to engage normally with the financial system as other types of entities do, um, or they're going to be forced to be outside of the traditional financial system. Now, for some people within crypto, that's fine, right? They don't want to have a lot of interaction between crypto and the traditional financial system. But I think realistically, uh, you're going to have to have some of those kind of interactions. And it seems to me to make more sense to say, no, we're going to work on building some sort of a way for the two worlds to, to, to coexist with each other and interact with each other that makes sense. Uh, and, and we're not going to just say, no, we're shutting it down because it's too risky. You know, I get why regulators are thinking about the potential for risk to flow from crypto into the traditional financial system. But the solution, again, is not just to say, well, we're going to sever all ties. That just doesn't make sense. So what's your conjecture of the future of crypto in the United States if we continue along this path? Well, I mean, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of what happens in 2023 and 2024 is going to be pretty consequential for how the industry develops in the long run. Now, on the, on the positive side, as I said, I think Chair Gensler understands the potential um, value of, and again, we're regulators, so we can't speculate on what is going to end up being valuable or not, but I think he, he understands the technology and the, and the potential the technology has for affecting the way we do things. So I think what we're seeing now is an attempt by the SEC to plant its its regulatory flag through enforcement actions. So I don't think that that we'll end up in a situation where crypto just is is outside the United States altogether. I mean that that's not going to happen because a lot of things can happen in a decentralized fashion anyway. Um, but I think that you know we're going to struggle for a while to get to a place where we really are productively regulating it. I think that's going to be a struggle. I think a lot of it will depend on whether or not Congress decides to weigh in with legislation to say, yes, we want the SEC to be doing this, or we want the CFTC or the banking regulators. So I think there's just a lot that remains uncertain. What's especially uncertain is the status of many of these tokens. And if we go back to even Chair Gensler's predecessor, Jay Clayton, and Chairman Gensler himself, the view has been that the majority or vast majority, in fact, of these tokens are securities. How can that sort of effectively pan out from a registration perspective 
Um, I would imagine the question that everyone's asking is how would that work? How can you register these tokens if it's sort of a decentralized entity? Who is the person filling out the version of an S1? And at the same time, if those tokens don't undergo that registration process, then what becomes of the the brokers and the exchanges that are facilitating trading in these assets? Um, I guess to put a finer point on the question, would the ideal situation be for your colleagues writ large, would it be for these exchanges to register as you know national securities exchanges and then have the tokens um, for which they're facilitating trading then also register some form of a of an S one and what does that picture look like? I mean, you're asking the right questions, right? So I think that Chair Gensler has been pretty clear that he wants exchanges, trading platforms to register, uh, and he's also been very clear that he thinks most of the tokens that are out there are securities. But I think that that does beg the the, the question of of then what does that regulatory framework look like? we're going to have to make some sort of accommodation for the way uh, trading venues work. It's different in traditional securities exchanges than it would be for a crypto exchange. We need to think through some of those issues. Um, and then in terms of the registration, again, I think you're asking the right question. What does that actually look like? What information do you really need to have when you're talking about a token? Um, I put out a safe harbor several years back that sort of tried to get at some of the information that I thought a purchaser of a token, whether it's on the primary market or on the secondary market, would want to know. Um, and I think that's a good starting point for us to think about the kind of information. I don't think that a typical company registering and telling you all about itself is exactly the kind of information that we need around tokens. Now, I have a bit of a different legal view of, of whether tokens themselves actually are securities. I would argue that although many of them uh, might have been offered in, initially offered in a securities offering, that doesn't make the token itself a security for the rest of its life. Um, and I, I think we have to answer this question because you're right that if something becomes a security, it changes the way that it moves about, you know, it changes who's allowed to engage with it. Someone is going to have to register as a broker if they're, if they're selling these things. So we have to, we have to answer those kinds of questions and we're not doing it. And um, so I think what you're seeing happen is using enforcement actions to try to build the regulatory framework. We saw that, for example, with BlockFi, where you bring an enforcement action and you say, okay, you know, you're going to come in and register. Well, that just, it's not, you know, putting aside the facts and circumstances of that particular case, it's not a good way of doing it. It's better to say, let's sit down and think about the information that someone would want when someone's buying a token, when someone's interacting with one of these platforms, the protections someone would want when trading on one of these platforms. And let's figure out a way to make adjustments. Congress gave us the authority to make adjustments in our framework for um, ent different entities or products, and we can do that. Now, I still think we have a fundamental question of, does Congress really want us to regulate in this space? 
it would be a lot more comfortable for me if Congress came in and said, yes, we want you, SEC, to go develop this framework for crypto trading platforms or for crypto tokens. You know, one of the problems that you have is that all of these trading platforms are likely to have on them assets that no one thinks are securities. And we're not used to having platforms that trade securities alongside non-secure securities. And that's going to be an issue that we have to resolve. Does that mean we have some sort of joint regulatory oversight with the CFTC? Maybe. Um, but again, it would be a lot more comfortable if Congress came in and decided what they wanted to see. You don't mince your words in your recent dissent uh, on Kraken, uh, where you describe using enforcement actions to tell people what the law is as not efficient. And then you also add that navigating these uncertain regulatory waters in this way is paternalistic and lazy. Um, pretty strong adjectives. Is, is that what you can chalk up this sort of the direction of, of the current chair? Is, is this, is it laziness? Well, Chair Gensler is not lazy. And I'm, you know, that, that comment about laziness is not a comment about any individual uh, staff at, at the SEC. I can, I can assure you people here work very hard, whether it's in enforcement or in our rule writing divisions or our examination divisions. So that's not the point. The point is that institutionally, it is a lazy approach to take because it is hard to sit down and try to figure out what the right regulatory approach is here. And those, those conversations are harder if you're trying to involve more people in them. But that's the way rules are supposed to be written in the United States. They're not supposed to be written in back rooms where a couple people are sitting there at the agency and from one company outside the agency and writing rules. That's not how things are supposed to be done. And so I'm arguing for a harder course, but I think a course that would be more productive and would put us in a better place as a, as a country with respect to our regulatory framework. The SEC as an institution does not handle change well. It's not just with respect to crypto, it's with respect to lots of things. And it's sometimes important for us to just, you know, do the hard work of saying, yeah, there are sometimes new products and new services come in and we have to figure out how to deal with them. And I don't think we've been willing to do that. Um, and it's been disappointing to me. I mean, you've seen it manifest itself, for example, in a Bitcoin exchange traded product. There's, there's no good reason that we don't have a Bitcoin exchange traded product. Again, the facts and circumstances of each application matter. But the reason we've been denying those is it's because we, it, it's something new and difficult for us to deal with. That's my, my take on it, because I don't, I don't see based on what we've done in the past with similar products, why we're not allowing it. So that's one example. I mean, it's a very, it's a very good example, right? Because I mean, I think personally, it doesn't make any sense that if you look at something like a product like GBTC, which is with all due respect for the fun folks at Grayscale, I mean, they're charging two bips for a product that never, it's either at a 50% discount or 20% premium. Um, and that's caused so much pain and suffering in the space. How is that, how is that better 
than an ETF. I'd be curious what your your counterparts or colleagues at the agency would would respond to that. It seems it seems almost you know un- unbelievable that that is um, superior to a, a transparent product that trades on a registered exchange with liquidity and and proper oversight and and less egregious fees. So I can't speak to that particular um, product because there's litigation around it. But again, I mean, I think I've put out a couple dissents around some of our denials of, of exchange-traded product applications. And I really, I don't understand the rationale behind it. So I think that that is, it's sort of even exchange-traded funds, which are a product that so many Americans have in their portfolios now. I'm not talking about crypto exchange-traded funds. I'm just talking about exchange-traded funds in general. It took us about 25 years to write a rule for them. So we're just new ideas, take a while to penetrate and work their way through into the into the rule book at the SEC. And, and, and that's something that I think we're seeing play out uh, very vividly in the crypto context. One question a lot of people have about what's going on in the U.S. regulatory environment as it pertains to crypto is it, it seems like there's some sort of active coordination with other regulators. You have the SEC teaming up with the IRS on Kraken, SEC and NYDFS on Paxos. To what extent can you speak to this coordination? Is is it Would it be an overstatement to say that there's some active anti-crypto coordination amongst these different agencies? I I think we make our decisions. Um, You know, we are an independent regulatory agency, as I said at at the beginning, and I think we really are making our decisions to act based on on how we perceive the law to be, again, a majority of the commissioners, right? How do a majority of the commissioners perceive the law? But of course, there is, you know, as I said, Post-2022, when all those events happen, there's a lot more attention both in Washington and among other regulators on crypto. And so it's not surprising that you're seeing a lot of different things happening in this space, in the regulatory space. And we do coordinate with, with both federal regulators and state regulators. And I think the American people would want us to coordinate some of the frustration sometimes comes when there's a lack of coordination. Mm. So we do work together and think about how our jurisdictions interact with one another. The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stable coins can bring faster payments at internet scale. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. USDC is more than just a stable coin. USDC is also an open source platform. When our transactions are actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when you switch his hand, it's fine. Right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form? USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving. A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists. So we approach this problem from a technology point of view. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. 
Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting edge zero knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's state connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. If I'm thinking about the different products that people are concerned about or services that people are concerned about, I think stablecoin is one, custody is another, and we can definitely dive into the the thorniness of, of what a qualified custodian is. But Looking at stablecoins first, should people expect a broader crackdown on stablecoin? And is it is it fair to say that the certain stablecoins that are backed 100% by cash and cash equivalents, are they safe from the ire of our regulators? Well, stablecoins are, I think, another area where I think it would have been good if we had sort of come out with some parameters about how we were thinking about stable coins as they intersect with the securities laws. Um, maybe it's something we also could have done together with the banking regulators. I mean, there there is still, because that's a discrete area, it's one where I think Congress has tried, uh, tried in the last Congress and could continue to try to deal with that piece of the crypto landscape, you know, discreetly and and do something legislatively there but in the interim you know i think it would be helpful if we or other regulators were to sort of say here's how we're thinking about stable coins the facts and circumstances of each matter and 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 what it is like legally and i think we we really have to remember that the the securities laws for example are very much dependent on how something is structured and the securities laws are broad, so we we I'm always urging people to think about how things interact with with our our rules, um, and I think the same the banking regulators probably would say the same thing. So ideally, there is some structure of a stablecoin that would not fit the definition of a security. Well, I think some of the legislative efforts, for example looked much more to, to a banking regulatory framework for stable coins. I mean, again, it's sort of up to Congress to make that, it is up to Congress to make the call of how they think, or if they think stable coins should be regulated. I mean, I, you know, I, I always like us to ask the question first, what are we trying to accomplish with regulation? Is it something that we could accomplish in some other way, or is regulation the right way to do that? A lot of people look at stable coins 
and they say, we think we want a regulatory solution. Okay, well, that's fine. Then let's figure out what it should be. And some people look at them and they say, this is just a money market fund that doesn't kick back the interest to the end user. So some people have made the comparison with, with stable coins and money markets. And again, it depends what, how the stable coin is structured. What do you make of that comparison? It's a facts and circumstances question. Depends. And, you know, I think the, the real question I try to, to ask too is what do we want to achieve, right? You want someone who buys a stable coin to have transparency into how it operates. Mm -hmm. You want them to understand, is it backed? If so, what, what is it backed by? Could the SEC fill that role of, of, of getting that kind of disclosure to people? Sure. It's very consistent with our, our role in other areas, the kinds of disclosures that we get in other areas. So, you know, fine. I, you know, it could be, it could be the SEC that does that. Other people might prefer a banking framework because it brings other types of things with it. Um, so I, I just, ultimately, Congress should, should figure out what they want. I think that it, that, that would be the best approach. In terms of banking, do you, do you believe that there's a risk that a lot of these crypto firms are not going to be able to find necessary or proper banking partners? I mean, I, you know, I do. And I think that it's, it's, uh, I, I have a concern that if you, if you send the message that we think crypto is too risky to engage with, you end up driving activity, concentrating activity, um, instead of having it spread across the banking system. Um, but from my perspective, you know, at the sitting at the SEC, banking regulators have to do their, their thing. But from my perspective, I look at something like Staff Accounting Bulletin 121, which seemed designed to me to make it more difficult for publicly listed entities to custody crypto. Um, why would we want to take trusted custody options off the table? I, I just don't understand that. And I think we're seeing sort of similar things happening on the banking side. Um, I, I understand banking regulators have to think about risk. We have to think about risk as we regulate also. But sometimes the solution that we take just seems counterintuitive to me. Understood. And maybe we can walk through what seems counterintuitive to you as it pertains to the commission's plan on reconfiguring what a qualified custodian is. Can you walk us through exactly where you disagree and what the potential ramifications are of, of this plan. So earlier this week, the commission put out a proposal on, um, on custody and this is custody for advisors. Um, and it's important to emphasize this rule is primarily not about crypto. It's primarily about just revamping the custody rules for advisors. And why does custody matter? Because you worry about the safety of an investment advisor's client's assets. You don't want the investment advisor or someone else to run off with those assets, whether it's crypto or whether it's something else. And so there are a lot of complexities with this new rule. One is that it applies to all assets where it it has not in the past, and so it applies to a whole range of different assets, and each of those asset classes could pose 
unique challenges in terms of finding a qualified custodian who's willing to hold those assets. So um, typically what an advisor will do is, is the, the custody of the assets will be with a qualified custodian. And the, the rule tries to set out a whole list of requirements for qualified custodians. So that's where my first problem comes in. I, I think it is important for custodians to meet the highest standards. We don't have direct regulatory authority over custodians. So what we've done in this, in this rule proposal is to say, you advisor have to enter into an agreement with the custodian and the agreement has to include all these kinds of very specific requirements. And that is our way of indirectly regulating custodians. And so I think some of those requirements could end up being quite problematic. We'll see. This proposal is out for comment. I encourage people to take a look at it. Um, with respect to crypto specifically, I think it's difficult for me to know how it will play out. And I, I really am curious to hear what, what people have to say. On the one hand, it doesn't say, for example, that you have to, you have to be federally regulated. It doesn't say that. Um, on the other hand, it does have requirements that make it difficult for an advisor to be involved with crypto because how you'll be able to trade on an exchange, on a trading platform, um, it's hard to understand because the crypto has to be in the custodian's control at all times. And I, I so I just don't, mechanically, I don't know how this is going to work. And I that's why I'm really looking forward to hearing comments of crypto custodians, investment advisors. One of the pieces I didn't like about the proposal is that it took this stand, which the commission's been taking, that all crypto tokens or virtually all of them are securities, and sort of implied that what investment advisors are doing now is wrong. Mm. And that's not what you're supposed to do with a proposed rule. Um, so there are a lot of pieces of it that have me quite concerned for the immediate time, um, but also is the end result going to be that investment advisors basically can't advise with respect to crypto assets? And I don't think that's a good I don't think that's a good result. Just double-clicking on the proposed safe harbor that you introduced, what what is the status of that? It, it's you know something that I think a lot of industry participants view as a fairly elegant solution to bringing existing crypto projects into compliance. Is there a chance that that sees the light of day? Uh, well, I think we're going to need to push a little bit more in order for something like that to see the light of day at the SEC again, because my colleagues take this, some of them at least take this very different view that everything is clear and all, all anyone needs to do is come in and register the same way a company would register. Um, so I still, I still hope that some of the elements of that safe harbor can form the basis for a tailored disclosure regime around crypto tokens if that's if that's the direction again that Congress would want to go I think that that's uh, it could be the basis for something like that so given the status of the safe harbor and it not being imminent is there anything that an industry participant can do to sort of be in the good graces of of the agency 
Well, again, you can always come in and talk to us, that old line, right? Come in and talk to us. And, and I don't think that's bad advice, but the problem is that. Well, they'll assume they'll be rewarded with an enforcement action. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this is the, the thing that I, I just think we haven't built that productive back and forth and, and people haven't been able to see positive results coming out the other end. Um, and people have to wait a long time. So you have to be prepared to come in and wait for a long time. But I do think that industry associations should be engaging with us. I think it's helpful to have that kind of engagement. Um, I, I think that, you know, I'm always happy to talk to people about what they're trying to do. And, and people should be bearing in mind, what are the, what are the objectives the SEC has? Well, we, investor protection is obviously one of those objectives fair, orderly, and efficient markets are another objective. Capital formation is another objective. But thinking through, okay, if you were sitting in the seat of an SEC regulator, how would you achieve those objectives while also allowing your project to move forward? And so putting out constructive solutions of ways we can do that, uh, I think is helpful. And then being proactive and trying to address some of the, the problems that you think regulators might have with what you're doing. Like, are you being transparent? Mm. Um, you know, what are you doing with the assets you're holding for your customers? Um, those are the kinds of things if a regulator comes in and, and sees that there aren't good controls around that, if they see that you're not doing any kind of internal controls, that you're not doing any kind of audit, um, that is going to look worse than if you really have everything buttoned down you know, in the way that you do things. It just, you know, from a common sense perspective, your customers probably care about that too. But I really think we need to, at the SEC, take that first step of engaging proactively. And, and, and so I'm going to continue to push for that from inside. This is a bit tangential, but what was your reaction to the FTX news? Open up your computer or maybe the, you know, get a notification on your phone? What went through your mind? I mean, I think everyone was saddened by the news of 2022. And, and it's always it's always heartbreaking for me to see people getting hurt. And, um, and I think that regulators can play a role in building a, a, an environment where it's less likely that people will get hurt. So it was, you know, it's just, it underscores for me the, the, the need for us to take this seriously. Was there anything specific, um, you know, just generally amongst you and your colleagues that you, you know, harken back, and, you know, I, I think everyone in the industry, me as well, as a, as a reporter just thought, you know, what red flags did I miss or, you know, what, what T's did I not cross as it were? Was, was there anything in that reflection process that, stood out or that? Well, I'm not going to speak about my colleagues, but what I'll say is that when you have centralized entities, there are problems that are likely to be a risk, whether it's a centralized entity that has crypto over the front door or whether it's a centralized entity that has traditional assets over the front door. And the whole point of crypto is to allow you to engage with people you don't know in a way where you can be confident and comfortable in that transaction because everything is on chain and because everyone is 
able to see what's happening on chain and everyone is participating on the same terms as everyone else, right? That's the core, I think, of what crypto is about. It's about enabling you to take away the centralized intermediary to interact with one another, even when you don't know the other person, um, to be able to do that. So we can't forget the potential of the technology to, to achieve that. When you start interposing centralized intermediaries, the same kind of problems arise as have always arisen with centralized intermediaries. So I think a lot of the interesting questions are going to be around how do regulators think about regulating de truly decentralized technology? That's a much more difficult question. I mean, we can disagree about how much federal regulatory oversight you want of centralized intermediaries in crypto. Fine. But really, the bigger question is, on the decentralized side, where is regulation displaced by the technology itself? And how do we then, as regulators, accommodate that, right? What What's the right approach? And, and that's the area that I think is more interesting to think about now. I mean, the central the problems that arise at centralized entities look a lot like the problems that we've seen at other centralized entities in, in, in uh, bad times in the past. Well, it's been interesting to see different regulatory agencies focus in on these centralized you know, brokers, if you want to call them that, or exchanges, if you want to call them that, and not the, the DeFi protocols themselves. We haven't seen any headlines about, you know, let's call it Uniswap or Aave or Compound. Would you say that those are relatively safe from an enforcement perspective relative to these more centralized uh, entities? What I say to everyone who's in the crypto space or other spaces, the reach of the securities laws is, is broad. And so you always have to think about what you're doing in connection with the securities laws and where, the, where those points might be. I think we need to think about you know, obviously, when the when the securities laws were written, they weren't thinking about decentralized technology. And so, what you know, when you look at the definition of exchange, thinking about how that would apply in a decentralized context, um, we really need to confront these issues and think about them. Part of the part of the concern is that if you confront them too early, you might take the wrong approach. So, I think people who are involved in building decentralized protocols should be thinking about um, how they think regulation should approach it and, and should be discussing that with me and others who would, who would be interested in trying to, um, you know, trying to figure out a rational approach to, uh, to that. I mean, you know, the, the answer can't be uh, that you just treat decentralized protocols just the way you treat centralized ones, right? So we have to think about how, how to do this rationally. Is, is that view widely held at the agency? I can't speak for anyone else. I, I don't know how they're, the, how they're approaching uh, decentralization. I think one of the problems too has been that, you know, everyone wants to say, well, we're decentralized. All right. Yeah. Three guys in a garage are decentralized. Not really. Commissioner, all you have to do is just add labs. If you, if you right. go, if you go by Hester labs, then <laughs> you're decent. officially decentralized. You have nothing to worry about. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's somewhat of a um, disconnect between the use of the term and the, and the actual reality. So we need to, uh, you know, I think 
in some ways, look, the regulation might be good in helping people actually live out that decentralization, which is kind of funny, you know, but at the same time, regulators are always going to cast about and try to find someone to hold responsible, especially if something goes wrong, right? So they're going to try to find one person or a couple people who are, or maybe an entire DAO, right, to hold responsible. So, you, you know, we're used to dealing with entities that we can serve process on. We're used to dealing with people that we can find. Um, and so if, if you tell us we can't do that, it puts us in a very difficult spot. Is there a specific regulatory regime or framework of which you are envious? Um, you mean a specific, another jurisdiction In another framework? jurisdiction. I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think I'm, I am impressed that Europe moved ahead and they put the Mika legislation into place so quickly. Mm. The downside of that is that technology moves along and you worry, you know, did you put the law into place and embed certain things in the law, you know, as, as reality was moving ahead of you. But the fact that they tried to do such a comprehensive thing, I think is, is impressive. Um, I would love us just to have a conversation in the United States that recognizes the values that are so important in mm. this country, right? The value of people having freedom to experiment, people having freedom to fail, people having the ability to interact with one another without having the government be part of that interaction. There are times when it's appropriate for a regulator to be there, um, but I really think we in the United States should try to craft a framework that recognizes that there are certain places that it'll be, you know, people who decide they want to engage in decentralized protocols are going to be taking that step and saying, I get that there's no regulator to backstop this. I get that if something goes wrong, I can't go crying to the SEC or to the CFTC. I think that would better reflect our values as Americans and then say, yeah, we're, you know, there are other places where there are centralized entities involved, where we think the framework, the regulatory framework should be this. We design a, a pragmatic, practical framework that doesn't say you got to shut the activity down, actually allows the activity to move forward. I think that might be one approach to things so that you do really have two systems. You allow people to kind of choose where they want to be. We definitely need some form of some parameters, whether it's a self-regulatory organization. Uh, there's been many attempts of, of that in the industry. But there needs to be something that's done to ensure that the centralized capital markets of crypto are robust. Um, the biggest problem, I think, in 2021, 2022, is just the idea of collateral and what is accepted as collateral. No one even thought about that. No one was thinking about that question, right? You're some people did, <laughs> but, but, and they didn't. They didn't lose as much money as some other people. But is this is this sort of a? Is your view? I mean, I feel like there should be some sort of parameters around around that. Maybe that's through regulation. Maybe that's just through um, you know self enforcement, as it were. But if you think about how over levered and um, 
irresponsible and greedy crypto's capital markets were these past few years, it, it begs the question that something needs to be done. And so what can you do there? Well, but again, I mean, so so certainly a lot of those kinds of problems, like the, the soundness and amount of collateral are the same kind of problems that you see in in emerging in the traditional financial world as well, right? That's where people get in, in trouble. They get in trouble when there's there's a lot of leverage. They're thinking, wow, I can really maximize my upside. And you can also really maximize your downside by doing by using leverage. But they don't think about that often in time, right? And you know, another basic lesson is high rewards usually come with high risk. And so you need to be thinking about that. You need to be thinking of whether you're over-concentrating. You don't want to have all of your assets uh, in crypto, right? Those kinds of things or, or, or anything else. I mean, these are these are basic financial lessons that we we teach people, whether it's in traditional finance or in crypto. Do we need to have those lessons enshrined in regulation? Maybe. I mean, if that's what we decide as a society that we want to that we want to do that, you know, that's fine. We do that in the traditional financial world. Uh, there are a lot of rules around those kinds of things. For many kinds of entities, there are rules around how much leverage you can have, what kind of collateral you can accept, those kinds of things. Um, but moments like 2022 are also often a very real reminder for people to put those protections in themselves mm. without having a regulator tell them to do that. Again, we can, I think there are a lot of people who would like to see a bigger federal regulatory presence in this space. And, you know, that's fine. Let's come up with something that makes sense. You could have a self-regulator, as you mentioned. I think people should look at what that actually will mean in practice. Will it just mean you have a self-regulator and then you also have a government regulator on top of that? Is that efficient? Is that really the best kind of system? Maybe it is because self-regulators can sometimes be a little more flexible than a government regulator, but self-regulatory organizations are really hard to design well also. So I think there are a lot of a lot of questions and a lot of, uh, you know, we we are likely to see more of a federal regulatory presence. But in the meantime, people should be taking common sense steps to protect themselves. And those include thinking about things like collateral leverage, counterparty risk, and so forth. In your ideal world, would, would you be keen to see Kraken and Coinbase and, and, and the rest register as national securities exchanges? Do you think that's necessary? I mean, in my ideal world, my ideal world is probably uh, you're in Mykonos less, with a glass of wine. <laughs> it's pr probably a, a less regulated world than some other people. You know, you could have frameworks where where you know people opt into regu regulation or something like that. But I, I think it's really important that we end up in a place that works for the American people. And if most American people are in the place where they want a federal regulator for trading platforms, then I mean, I would prefer that Congress give the authority to someone. And if Congress decides the SEC is the right someone, I think that could make sense because the SEC is good at regulating exchanges. It knows the kinds of bad behavior that can happen on exchanges. It knows the kind of protections that you need to have in place. And so 
that would be a very, we would be a very natural regulator. Um, and I think arguably we would be the most natural regulator to play that role should the American people through Congress decide that there needs to be a federal regulator. Um, same for disclosures around token around tokens. Again, I think the SEC is well positioned to think about what it is retail purchasers need when they buy a token. We're good at doing disclosure. We're good at thinking about the costs and benefits of disclosure. I have some issues with some of the disclosures we're trying to write now for public companies, but in general, I think we're pretty good at that. So yes, I mean, if, again, if the American people with Congress decide that's appropriate, then I think the SEC is is a pretty natural regulator. Do you think this will be a priority for Congress in this in this session? I mean, they have a lot of stuff going on too, and so like the balloons <laughs> and many other things, many right? Other so, things. so you know, I think that crypto is getting a lot of attention, and at least you might as well take the moment when there's a lot of attention to try to come up with some legislation. I just the thing that I think is is really important is that we don't forget our fundamental American values in the process of writing that kind of legislation, right? And there there are areas where I am concerned. Um, and I think one of them is, is financial privacy. I think it's so important that we keep that at the forefront of whatever we do in this space. Um, because again, the government can see more and process more information than ever before. And so I think there can be a tendency to try to, to try to control uh, what Americans, or at least surveil what Americans are doing. So those kinds of things I hope get embedded in whatever whatever kind of legislative or regulatory approach we're taking. That there's there's value placed on protecting people's liberty and privacy. In that vein, are you anti-pro CBDC? I mean, you know, in some ways, a stable coin, I think, dollar-backed stable coins um, achieve m- much of what you try to be doing with a, with a CBDC, and then you've got private competition. I know others favor having a CBDC. You'd have to build in protections for that because otherwise you could end up in a place where there really is, there are limitations placed on, on, on what people can do with their money. Um, so I just think it's the private sector is always more interesting to me. Innovation in the private sector is always more interesting to me than public sector innovation. Fair enough. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. I appreciate the chance to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, I ask every guest at the end of the show where, where our listeners can find you. You're on the Twitter I'm on Twitter uh, under my name, or you can just email Commissioner Purse at sec.gov. Uh, e before I is the key in, uh, in, in sending that. Or you can come by and visit me or give me a call, whatever. I'm, I, when I travel to, to different cities, I try to tweet out that I'm traveling and love to meet, meet with people um, when I'm out and about as well. Commissioner Purse, thanks so much for stopping by the show. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Frank. Have a good day. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.